You are listening to the Godarchy Podcast, where we shove a crowbar between state and church. This is the spot where Christian faith intersects with libertarian anarchism and voluntarism. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. This episode is history. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the Godarchy Podcast. As always, I very much appreciate the fact that you've taken a little bit of time out of your day to listen to the show. Today we're going to be talking to C.J. Kilmer. Now, C.J. is the host of the Dangerous History Podcast. And I first ran across this podcast, gosh, years ago, and was immediately sucked into it. Um, C.J. does a fantastic job of teaching history in a way that you're not going to get from your typical mainstream history sources. And the reason for this is C.J. is a radical libertarian, as am I. Um, And so I think the best way to sum it up is that so often when we are um, learning history, reading history, the people teaching it are pulling for a team, whether it's Team USA or, you know, there's always some team that the historian, that's kind of where their perspective lies. And CJ doesn't have a team. So I think it creates a more balanced approach to the way he looks at history. And like I said, his, his podcast is outstanding. Um, he does a lot of research. He puts a lot of work into what he's doing. So I highly recommend, obviously, listening to his show, adding it to your podcast list. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation, as is the case with most Godarchy conversations. You know, you just never know where it's going to go. And I think one of the most interesting parts of my chat with CJ is when we got into talking about human nature and, um, you know, does human nature change? And how does that view of human nature kind of color how we look at history and and how we look at current events and things moving forward? So, um, I think you're going to enjoy the interview. Before we get into it, I do want to remind you that there are various ways you can support this show. And I very much appreciate appreciate the support that uh, folks give. The first thing that you can do... And probably the most vital thing you can do is share episodes, share Godarchy posts, let people know that we're out there. Um, as I've said over the last uh, in the last couple episodes, social media rith- algorithms don't really like Godarchy all that much. So the only way to overcome that is to put it out there, share it on your own social media channels, let people know what we're doing. And if if you would just do that one thing, I'd really appreciate it. Um, You can also avoid those algorithms and just sign up for the Godarchy email list. You can do that over at godarchy.org. And, you know, that's one way. You don't have to worry about finding it on social media. Every week, I will send you an email. I will give you links to the latest articles, to the latest podcast episodes. um, and, And so you can keep up with this that way. And then if you want to support the Godarchy podcast with your hard-earned dollars, that also is very much appreciated. Um, 
I recently abandoned the Patreon platform and just created my own platform through my website. If you go to godarchy.org, you'll see a link for support Godarchy. Uh, if you click that, you can go through and and uh, and support us on a monthly basis. Um, if you do, you will have access to secret, special, awesome bonus content, uh, specifically our mudslide rounds, uh, where we talk a little bit more with our uh, interview guests and do some fun stuff with them. So um, you can do that. Also, if you want to just uh, make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. There's a link on godarchy.org for uh, PayPal. And also, I will be happy to accept donations in crypto, Ethereum or Bitcoin. Um, And again, godarchy.org, you'll find places to do that. Really appreciate the support. you know, one of the things I think makes this supporting listeners program, if you will, special is that I'm going to pass on some of that support to other folks, people who are in need, organizations that we believe in. It's kind of a way to build community and support community and kind of do this volunteerism thing that we're talking about. So, again, you can check that out over at godarchy.org, and I will definitely appreciate your support. Um, so, that's all the business. Let's get into this conversation with my friend, C.J. Kilmer. C.J. Kilmer, welcome to the Godarchy Podcast. Thanks so much for taking a little time out of your day to come on the show. Sure thing, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. So, we're going to talk a little bit about history, because that's what you do. And uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about how much government sucks, because that's what we do on this show. So, that should be Sounds fun. good. Yeah. Um, but... Let's start just a little bit. Give us give us your background. Uh, people know that you are the host of the Dangerous History Podcast, which I've already given rave reviews to. Um, but tell us a little bit about C.J. Kilmer. Okay. Yeah, so um, I'm a born and raised Florida man. Um, I was actually born all the way down in Miami, which is uh, the Florida of Florida. Right. And um, eventually I went on to get a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree uh, in history. And um, for a variety of reasons, some of them kind of personal and familial, some of them sort of disillusionment uh, with with academia, um, I decided not to go on to a PhD, even Mm -hmm. though that was original, my original plan when I went to graduate school. Um, And, you know, it wasn't that I didn't do well, I got almost all A's in graduate school. uh, And the professors that I worked with, you know, were generally pretty positive on me. And I was even sort of like uh, preemptively pre-accepted into the history PhD program in um, at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, which is where I got my master's degree. Uh, they said, you know, when I, when I did my uh, master's degree oral exams, they basically said like, oh yeah, you're kind of like a walk-on if you want to, you know, just walk right into a PhD program here. Like, yeah, there's, you know, um, but for a variety of reasons, I decided not to do it. And then what I ended up doing, uh, I taught as an adjunct uh, because most colleges and universities these days, you can't get a full-time teaching position unless you have the PhD. It's right. Uh, academia, for those who don't know, is is very rigidly credentialist in a way that a lot of private sector jobs are not, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, private sector jobs where 
even if you're missing some formal credential, if you can provide evidence that you can do a job, they'll often, you know, kind of bend the the requirements. But in academia, it's very rigid. And so I adjuncted, which they'll they'll let you adjunct with just a master's degree at a lot of places, which means you know you get crap for pay and zero right. benefits. Um, and I adjuncted for a year at, at two colleges simultaneously. I was doing almost a full time teaching load, but getting way less than full time. Uh, pay and no benefits. And then I, I got a gig about the best you can do with just a master's in most fields uh, with teaching is you can um, potentially get a full-time gig at a community college, which is what I ended up eventually getting right. uh, here in North Florida. And so I, I taught full-time uh, there for 15 years and you know, first few years, I, I liked it, even though I was I was super busy and and desperately just trying to keep my head above water. Right. But I gradually started to get disillusioned with it for a variety of reasons. And so, all the way back in 2014, just a little over eight years ago, I started the Dangerous History podcast initially as just sort of like an outlet or a side project. And um, you know, it was I, I had already accumulated in in all my time in graduate school, all my time. I've been interested in history and reading big series history books since I was like 13, 14 years old. Right. And um, between that, my time uh, in in college as a student, and then my time teaching and continuing to research for cool stuff to share with my students, I had accumulated uh, all kinds of interesting stuff that most people have no idea about uh, as far as history goes, and. Um, I, I decided to start the Dangerous History podcast as just sort of like an outlet for me to be able to really, I mean, I, I shared a lot of pretty radical kind of libertarian revisionist sorts of stuff with my students from pretty early on in my teaching career. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I wanted to, to basically be able to do whatever the hell I wanted to do and to have absolutely no restrictions of any sort right? and be able to just delve into things in a way, you know, when I'm teaching an entire uh, like 200 years on US history in one semester uh, you know I could share a few minutes on COINTELPRO or I can share a few minutes on MK Ultra or some other thing like that right but you know I was thinking wouldn't it be cool if I could just like talk about something like COINTELPRO for an hour yeah um, so anyway started the Nature's History podcast uh, with like zero budget almost no know-how I basically learned how to podcast and do audio and editing and everything like that um, on the fly. And uh, sort of like, I think it's the Ray Bradbury quote, jump out the window and build your parachute on the way down. That's, yes. that's kind of what I was doing. And so, you know, gradually I improved my, my quality. Um, I learned how to do better audio. I learned how to do better just as far as like presenting solo podcasts because it's a different, Yeah, you know, I'm used to speaking to a classroom full of students and then now I'm speaking to an empty room and a microphone yeah, it's uh, when I'm doing my solo episodes. Yeah. So I, I had to get used to that, get comfortable with that, figure out how to do it in a way that sounded good on a podcast. But I gradually, gradually from zero built up a following and, um, you know, eventually became a fairly minor uh, internet libertarian celebrity and, you know, started to occasionally get invited to speak at cool events and whatever like that. And then finally, this summer, I decided I just absolutely couldn't bring myself to return to my teaching day job in August. And I 
finally figured out a way. I, I felt for years like I was caught in a catch-22. Once my podcast started to make me a little money and all that, I was like, wow, I could potentially build this into something that could be you know, a career. But I was having a difficult time for the last several years, sort of getting the, um, I forget what they call it in, in like the space uh, exploration realm, the, the like the the breakaway velocity or whatever yes. it's called. Yeah, yeah. We're like you need that that one oomph, you know, with the extra rocket boosters and whatever, just to break free of your planet's gravity enough that you can then be out in space and then it's easy going. Right. Um, so I finally, and I and I'm kind of kicking myself that I was dumb enough that it didn't occur to me, uh, you know, earlier. <laughs> but I, I finally said, what about a one time crowdfunding? campaign you know because i was making okay money yeah. uh, monthly from things like patreon and and so forth but you know my pay at my day job was never good but it was steady right. and um the benefits were pretty good by by current american standards so you know not great but good relatively and so it was a matter of well how can i how can i get to where i can walk away and not have my family immediately get homeless and have no no health care and whatever <laughs> yes um so yeah i did the I, I went the indiegogo route and my initial goal was was twelve thousand dollars i had only a few weeks to do it in order to give my employer proper notice before school started back up and you know i had no idea and um before uh the original deadline i set was reached i had Long since uh, blasted through the twelve thousand dollars, and um, currently, because uh, Indiegogo allows me and allows everybody else to, um, if your crowdfunding campaign gets fully funded prior to its deadline, you can continue to run it for I think a month yeah. uh, after the original deadline. So I decided to do that, and people continued to throw in money, and so last I checked. I'm just a smidge below $21,000 out of an original goal of $12,000. So that gave me the the little cushion I needed uh, to to resign from the job I'd been at for 15 years. And um, aside from the encouragement, right, that in a few weeks, a whole bunch of people from around the world who who like what I do enough to want to get more of it from me, right? Um, you know, we're willing to pony up over twenty thousand dollars to yeah. help me do it. Yeah. Like that's really, aside from just financially giving me giving me a little bit of a safety net uh, for the next few months, that also provided me with like the moral encouragement that wow, you know, people really value what I do. Yeah, that's so, that's cool, it's, and that's hard because you know you're you're talking into a microphone, like you said, in an empty room. You can see downloads, but I don't know. There's something about that that actual feedback that's uh, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I made decent money, like I said, month to month from things like Patreon. So mm -hmm. I knew there were people um, that, you know, really valued what I what I did. But man, right. to, to have that in just a few weeks, you know, oh, I'd like to raise $12,000. And then in in the course of like three or four weeks, I'm at $21,000. Yeah. Like that was just, you know, um, almost brought me to tears in gratitude, honestly. Yeah, I, know, I feel you. I, and I, I, I totally can relate to that, you know, trying to get that velo. I think all entrepreneurs struggle with that at some point, you know, the, where, where you're, I, I was in news, I was actually working at a TV station and, and I kind of, it was in that, I remember being in that same place. It's like, I, I'm, I'm about there, but I'm not quite. And then at that point you're driving yourself crazy because you're basically doing two full-time jobs. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been super busy the last eight years. Um, the last thing I am is a overnight success, you know? Right. And um, I'm trying to remember, I, I think it was on, 
I forget what podcast it was on. I, I heard someone recently talking about, uh, I think they called it the beta zone or something, something along those lines. And the idea is the worst place to be is in a situation where you're not super happy, you're not super optimal, you're not super fulfilled, yeah. but you're also not horrifically miserable. Right. And because then you get sort of trapped in that quiet desperation. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's where I was for a long time with my job. And then, you know, uh, I've, and I've spoken about this publicly, but I've always been prone to depression. I, I've mm -hmm. got it um, from multiple sides in my family tree. Uh, and, you know, had enough things uh, go wrong in my childhood to activate all those epigenetic switches and everything like mm -hmm. that. And the last, you know, two and a half years uh, had, had been probably, not probably, definitely the, the, the hardest prolonged period of depression for me. Yeah. And much of it stemming from everything to do with the COVID regime oh, yeah. and, and everything that came from it and how it affected uh, my job and my day-to-day -day life. And it just ground me down. You know, for the first five, six months of the COVID regime, I, I was a happy warrior. I was like, well, this kind of sucks, but you know. Yeah. Um, Soldier um, on. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, it, just, it was only it, two weeks, right? Oh, two weeks yeah. to flatten the curve, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Two weeks to flatten the curve became uh, two years to flatten the world. Exactly. Is, is how I put it. Um, but yeah, it, it just it just ground me down by attrition and, you know, got me very depressed. And, and the job was getting more and more depressive to me, not just because of the COVID stuff, but because of other changes and things happening. And, um, and then a series of unfortunate events happened to me this spring that really made me even more depressed. And so... I guess my point is that as as horrible as the last two and a half years were for my mental health, um, I can now look back on it and ultimately be be grateful mm -hmm. that all of that happened to me because all of that gave me the the push that I needed. It pushed me from being stuck in that that beta zone, that limbo zone of I'm not super happy and fulfilled at this job, but I also you know. Uh, I'm not uncomfortable enough to to just you know burn my bridges and walk away to finally being like that that's it I, I can't do this anymore yeah um, so you know now I'm actually I, I guess this happens to everybody the whole if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger thing. right um, that that you can turn you can turn suffering uh, into something positive assuming it doesn't kill you and assuming that um, you know you make the decision to to turn it into something positive. Right, absolutely. It's kind of the whole spiritual idea of being, you know, in the desert. You spend time in the desert before you can before you can be in the promised land and that kind of makes you appreciate that retrospect, you know, what what you've been through. Um and if you have to look back at everything and and find no purpose in it, then that that gets even more depressing. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it um it definitely made everything that much better when I finally said I'm out of here yeah. and um, cleaned out the classroom and office that I'd occupied for 15 years, which was a hell of a job. It took me, <laughs> um, it took, it took me four days actually to, to get everything cleaned out and, you know, brought home the stuff I wanted to keep and threw out the right. stuff I wanted to throw out. And of course, you know, uh, the, the campus dumpster was like on the complete opposite side of, of course it a was pretty sprawling campus yeah it was like at least a half mile away if if not more from uh, in, in august in in uh northeast florida yeah yeah i mean it, it was a particularly hot week too it was you know the heat index was like 110 with the right. humidity factored in and i'm dragging i had this little wheelie cart you know i'm dragging 
uh, just piles of, of uh, you know, hefty steel sacks across campus to throw them in the dumpster. But boy, was I happy. And I'll tell you, um, last week was the week that I would have been back at work um, preparing for this week, which is the first week of classes right. there. And so last week was particularly uh, joyful to me. And I, and I felt particularly grateful because I was like, wow, this is the week when I'd be going in and, you know, sitting through all kinds of meetings that are completely pointless. Yes. And, um, yeah. So yes, I'm a, I'm a liberated human being now, Indeed. free range. So you mentioned this uh, kind of earlier on when you were talking that, that you were interested in history from a pretty young age. Uh, kind of what got you into that as a, you know, 13, 14 year old. I mean, most 13, 14 year olds aren't reading history books. What, what kind of sparked that in you? Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about why we get interested in the things we get interested in. Yeah, And I, I think that as with most things, it's ultimately a combination of nature and nurture. I, I don't think mm -hmm. things are, most things anyway, are are 100% one or the other. Yeah, I agree. And so, uh, in, in my case, I, I generally tend to just be a very curious person. I always want to figure out, you know, how things work and how things got to be the way they are. Right. And, you know, somebody once said that when you're born, it's like you're born into the middle of a story that's been going on for countless thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And so imagine there was a movie that's thousands of years long and you're suddenly just plopped into the middle of it. I mean, you'd be right. wondering like, who's that guy? Why are those people doing those things? You know, right. how do we get to this point? And so to me, history is like you're dropped into that situation and you're able to get uh, access to the backstory yeah. to the to the prequels or whatever, and then once you have access to the prequels and you know what went down before you got into the theater, um, then then you're able to, um, you're able to understand better what's happening right now. Right, and so I think that was just the the inherent internal thing I had as far as personality goes. But then there's also, you know the experience the nurture side of things mm -hmm. and in my case i i went to florida public schools um you know all the way up through 12th grade and i know um this might shock people but most of the teachers i had were either you know just kind of blah mediocre or um downright terrible like yes. in, in, in some cases and i don't just mean they were mean and whatever although some of them were but people that you could tell uh, were not particularly expert or enthusiastic about the subject they were teaching. You know, yeah. Um, I, I remember I had one marine biology teacher in high school, and I was so excited to take that class because I love fishing, I love yeah. you know snorkeling. I grew up in the water in Florida. I'm like, yeah, marine biology this is going to be great, uh, and it was terrible. And and I could tell pretty quickly that this guy knew less about marine biology than I did just uh, from spending my childhood fishing. You know, yeah. Um, but most of us who went to public school we can remember the few really good teachers because yep. precisely because they were not the norm. You know, they stood out like if all of your teachers were superb, it would be hard to be like, Oh, Mr. So-and-so miss such and such, you know, they were great. But through the luck of the draw, I just happened to have um, two of my best teachers were history teachers. I had yeah. a really great history teacher uh, in middle school who, who did a really good job of making everything interesting. And then again, in high school, I had a really good history teacher uh, who was excellent and I don't know about the the middle school history teacher that I liked, but I know for sure that the high school history teacher that I liked actually had a master's in history, not in education. Oh wow! And, okay. And so that's um, unusual, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he actually 
Lee also taught as an adjunct at the local community college at night, too. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I could tell right off the bat um, because he was my history teacher in my last two years of high school. And I had very, you know, mediocre to poor history teachers my first two years of high school. And I could tell right off the bat, like the first day of class, I was like, oh, this guy actually knows what he's talking about, yeah. you know, because he could talk off the cuff in detail about stuff without looking at any notes. Right. You know, he could go well beyond what was in the textbook and all that stuff. And, um, and he was good at communicating it. So, you know, the, those two things just kind of nudged me to where I've always been a voracious reader. But by the time uh, I was a teenager, in addition to reading tons of fiction, I was also reading uh, history and political science and all these sorts of things. So, yeah, that's what got me into it. And then uh, history, I, I'm one of the people who can say that studying history is actually what turned me into a libertarian. I was actually going to ask that question. So Yeah, yeah. And I'm surprised. Well, on one level, yes. And on one level, no. In a way, I'm surprised that more people who, who read a lot of history don't become libertarians or anarchists or whatever right. because there's just i mean it's you know especially when you're looking at like the the political side of history and all that it's a bunch of uh, psychopaths you know <laughs> yes. exploiting people and 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 starting wars for their own personal benefit right. and i mean just all these terrible things and and you would think that more people if you read about that stuff long enough you you'd put two and two together and be like oh yeah you know authority uh, in the political sense coercive political authority is not a good thing and is at the very least something that you should be skeptical of um but on the other hand i'm not surprised because um as i'm sure you know and probably most of your listeners know a huge amount of what is done under the banner of history is ultimately uh, court history it's propaganda exactly and you know so yeah if all you're reading is doors could Kearns Goodwin uh, and Michael Beschloss and all these sorts of establishment-approved people, of course, uh, you're never going to draw lessons that are anti-authoritarian from history because they're going to tell you that uh, you know most of the presidents have been great guys. Right. Uh, Our know. authoritarians are good authoritarians. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a few bad apples, like you know, basically Nixon and Trump is about it as far <laughs> right. as those people are concerned. Right. Um, but but those handful of bad apples just serve to make all the others look so great. You know, yeah. like like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and now even George W. Bush is getting rehabilitated. I've seen. Um, I'm so excited to take his master class in leadership, <laughs> so I can learn how to start multiple wars based on lies and get hundreds of thousands of innocent people killed for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, but not funny. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I guess my response is that I always have kind of a dark sense of humor about things. And so, yeah, I'm able to, to laugh at these sorts of things and, but still, you know, someone might see me laughing at George W. Bush's masterclass on leadership thing. Like if, if they're an anti-war person be like, Oh, how dare you joke about this? And it's like, well, that's how I deal with horrible things. <laughs> right, exactly. No, I totally get that. I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, you you, you almost have to laugh so as not to cry. Yeah, it's cartoonish yeah. Yeah, on exactly. some level. The the degree to which this is um and it's so predictable too that um so many of the same establishment figures who when Bush was actually president were calling him a war criminal and calling him literally Hitler and whatever. Yeah. Um, but now that they've decided that Trump is the worst thing ever in the world, now suddenly, just because Bush doesn't like Trump, now suddenly Bush is a great guy. Right. Uh, and we're supposed to overlook all of his crimes and everything like that. Yeah. You know, you, you hit on something that that really drew me to your show initially. And um, I noticed it right off when I first started listening. And and then I think it 
really became clear to me when you did the big uh, series on the Civil War. And your approach is such that you're not getting the team narrative, if that makes sense. So, like, when you take, take the Civil War, people tend to approach it either from their kind of pro-North team or their kind of pro-South team, and you weren't pro any team. So, it made it, I don't know, in a sense, I think much more objective. And maybe that's because you share my biases. But um, it, it, I, I think that's one of the, the the great things about your show is that it is absent the the you know, the the regime talk and the propaganda and all of that stuff. In fact, you kind of lay that bare and uh, expose it for what it is. And that's one of the reasons that I really always think I love pointing your, your show to people who are interested in the history who don't necessarily share our political philosophy because they're going to get the political philosophy without it being hammered on their head, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And that is something that I've, especially after the first few years of doing the podcast when I was just sort of figuring things out uh, that I did kind of shoot for is I, I shoot for what I call honest history. And I did a whole episode a couple of years ago trying mm-hmm. to explain sort of what I mean by this. And I don't have like a, maybe I'll figure one out someday, but I don't have like a simple little one sentence definition of honest history, but I try to sketch out some of the things I think about as far as what I'm shooting for. And you know, to me, a, a big part of honest history is that it is not propaganda. Right. And so I'm not trying to, it doesn't mean that I don't have my own ideological perspective and point of view on things. Right. And to me, to be honest, to be an honest historian is to not hide that and to not, you know, delude yourself or your your readers or listeners or whatever. So So many people who are obviously on a team if they're doing history, we'll say, oh, no, 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 this is totally objective. And you just right. look at it for a second and go, no, you're no, obviously, not. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you're, you're obviously whatever, a, a neocon, or you're obviously, you know, a typical center left uh, progressive establishment person, right. you know, um, you obviously have, have biases. And to me, the more honest thing is to say, look, here's kind of my overall point of view. This is where I'm coming from. Uh, and then by acknowledging that to the person that's listening to you or reading you, uh, and by acknowledging it uh, to yourself, I think it's easier to then try to be fair. Yeah. Um, because I can say, look, you know, I've got all these problems with Abraham Lincoln and I'm no fan of the US federal government. However, to use the Civil War example that you brought up, however, that doesn't mean that the Confederates were all good guys. And then exactly. I'm going to start waving a Confederate flag because guess what? A, a lot of things that they did, right. um, you know, aside from the whole, you know, elephant in the room slavery issue. Right. Uh, even if you just look at, you know, how the Confederate government tried to run their war effort, mm-hmm. it was very authoritarian. Yeah. Very, very often, libertarians will get drawn into, you know, they'll, they'll learn some of the truth about Lincoln and the Union side of the Civil War, right. and then they immediately fall to the opposite side of the dichotomy, and they suddenly mm-hmm. become Confederate apologists. Yeah, I think and I was guilty of that at, at, at some point in my evolution. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely had some of that attitude. Um, even in the early days of my podcast, I was a little bit more sympathetic to the Confederacy than I became when I really delved into the research uh, for that Civil War series, which right. was, you know, I, I must have read three dozen books yeah. for that thing. And it's a fantastic series, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, that was so oh, that was a project. Yes, um, it was. But, uh, you know, with with the Confederacy, it's like, 
people say, oh, you know, the, the union government did all these authoritarian things in, in the course of pursuing the war. And most of them, the Confederate government had also, also did over the course of the war as well. Right. And in, in some instances, at least, they went even further. Even further, so, yeah. Yeah, as far as like taking over the economy and all that, mm-hmm. uh, the Confederacy went much further than the Union. They implemented something that some have characterized as war socialism. Yeah. And, um, you know, they they didn't do as much in terms of like uh, cracking down on freedom of speech and whatever, but it wasn't so much because their leaders were against it as much as they didn't have the logistical capability, you know, the organizational capability to do it right um, i'm pretty sure jeff jeff davis would have cracked down on free speech and free press at least as much as lincoln did in the north if he had the capability to do yeah. it um so yeah i mean that that's you know one of those things that people they often they, they learn the dark side of one side of an economy and they immediately start to become apologists and put the other side on a pedestal right and my whole point is like you don't have to pick a team yeah. um and you know i i think about it where Sometimes people will, in more recent cases, they'll see a person or an organization that clearly is a victim of the federal government. Right. And they immediately then flip it into, oh, they're they're a good guy. Like, yeah. you know, there are people who who go around basically trying to act like David Koresh was totally fine and there's nothing at all, you know, shady or weird or suspicious or dark about right. him and his organization. It's like, no, you can acknowledge those people were victims and they certainly shouldn't have been treated the way they were, especially, you know, the the kids who were there and right. all that. I mean, it's horrific. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that there's not something creepy about uh, David Koresh and at least some of what he he's alleged to have been doing. And, you know, right. I don't know how much of it's true or how much of it's not or, you know, Randy Weaver or any of these people. It's like, right. yeah. They could be victims of of an abusive federal government and also be people like I don't want to be, you know, apologists for and buddies with. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. Your your kind of approach and philosophy toward history is very similar to mine uh, when it comes to journalism. So journalism is my background. And I always said, you know, they talk about journalism being uh, unbiased. I don't think that's possible because human beings are inherently biased. We, we're we're biased by all kinds of things, by our our upbringing, our religious beliefs, our political, you know, all kinds of things. But we can be objective, even if we're not unbiased. And and part of that is recognizing your biases and working to overcome them. And and the second thing is just seeking out both sides of of uh, of whatever issue you're delving into, so you can be fair and objective. And yet, still be biased and acknowledge that bias. And I think kind of that's kind of what you're saying with history. And I think that's a that's a important way to approach it. Yeah, yeah. Another sort of instance of this that I've seen a lot is um, in regard to like current events or recent events with the U.S. government, where um, and and this seems to be something that that anti-war leftists are kind of particularly prone to, where they will. They'll see the U.S. government doing something not great in the international realm to right. some country, and instead of just stopping there, I mean, like, look, this is wrong because of such and such. They'll they'll then you know flip to the other side of the dichotomy and suddenly become apologists. And so right. you know you'll have you'll have people who will point out the NATO complicity in in provoking the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, mm-hmm. and and that's all fair. But then they'll go to the opposite extreme and start trying to paint Putin as like this great guy. Yeah. Or, you know, they'll do it with Venezuela. You know, they'll, they'll look at the US government doing bad things to Venezuela and, um, you know, they'll go 
instead of just saying like the U.S. government shouldn't be doing these things, uh, they'll they'll go all the way to well, actually, the Venezuelan regime is great and it's a wonderful paragon of human rights and it's helping its people and right. you know, or it's the same same thing uh, that happened back during the Vietnam War, you right. know, where the the anti-war movement could have done a lot better if it had stopped short of becoming apologists for Ho Chi Minh and just simply right. said, look, the U.S. shouldn't be involved, they shouldn't be doing all the things they're doing over there. That doesn't mean Ho Chi Minh's a good guy and his regime is great. Uh, it just means that, you know, dumping napalm and white phosphorus and uh, Agent Orange all over an entire country is not a good thing to be doing. Right, right, exactly. I've seen this, you know, I've seen this tendency in in the libertarian anti-war movement as well. Uh, this this propensity to kind of elevate other regimes and and forget that, I mean, when you really boil it all down, reg- a regime is a regime, you know. Um, they all share certain fundamental things, the foremost, the quest for power. And um, so, you know, you can't you can't let the other guy off the hook just because your guy's bad, too. I think that's a very important thing to keep in our heads. Yeah, I would not be particularly thrilled to, you know, be living under Putin's regime. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to try and pretend he's something other than, you know, another uh, political leader with all, all sorts of, you know, negative characteristics and tendencies. Right. So here's a question for you from from a historical standpoint. You hear this idea that history history repeats or, or some people will say history rhymes. Do you do you kind of fall into either of those camps or is that all BS? No, I I think there's some truth to it. And like a lot of things I I think you can take it too far or take it too literally mm-hmm. but i definitely think there are repetitions of themes and partly i think it has to do with like human nature i i, I always am hesitant to come down super hard on one side of a dichotomy like i was saying before for the nature versus nurture thing. Right. To me, anybody who's like, oh, the, whatever it is you're looking at, oh, it's 100% nature, or, oh, it's 100% nurture. Mm-hmm. Neither of those seems seems plausible to me in most cases. Um, you know, there's a few rare things like a particular birth defect or genetic disease or whatever. Right, but, right. Um, you know, most things people are talking about as far as like personality traits or whatever. And the same thing um, when, you know, is history, um, is it linear or is it sick? Well, it's kind of a bit of both. Mm-hmm. And the same thing I would say as far as the question of human nature, is there such a thing as human nature that is timeless? Uh, my answer would be, well, yes and no. But yeah. To me, it's pretty clear that a person today in, in a modern developed country is hugely different in terms of how they behave from a person from 500 years ago, let alone a person from 5,000 years ago. Right. Like there's clearly going to be massive differences in the way that they respond to all sorts of, of things that's molded by their, their experience growing up in their environment. But I do think there are certain aspects of human nature that are kind of timeless. Now, they might manifest in different ways in different situations, mm-hmm. but you know, things like um, the the lust for power that some people are particularly prone to. Like, I don't think that's ever going to go away. And, um, you know, the fact that people uh, will, will often tend to pursue their own interests, but give it the veneer of altruism or the public good or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those things I think are are pretty timeless elements of human nature. Uh, The tendency 
of of leaders to create wars for their own uh, you know their own purposes uh the tendency of most people to go along with that when it happens right um you know a lot of these things don't ever seem to really go away and so i definitely think there are there are cycles i do think there is something to the idea of different civilizations and empires kind of go through different life cycles i do think there's something to that you know i, I might not take it quite as far in the literal direction as somebody like oswald spengler would right but um i think uh, actually carol quigley in in tragedy and hope does a pretty good job of, of sort of sketching out an idea of of like cycles of that civilizations go through mm -hmm. and i definitely think there's a strong case to be made that the united states is currently in an imperial decline uh, phase of its evolution it's funny you that, say that my my wife and i actually just had this conversation two nights ago yeah yeah i mean this has been on my mind for a while but particularly the last few years and i i don't think there's any way to make sense of recent american history without understanding that a big part of what's going on is classic imperial decline yeah and you know you can compare it to lots of other empires that have come before and i think there's th this is a case where i think it illustrates the idea that history rhymes yeah. where it's not the same mm -hmm. but for example um i think there are elements of the roman empire's decline that are clearly similar and parallel to america's mm -hmm. but i also think there are uh, elements to the soviet union's yeah. decline that are similar and analogous to America's decline. And the same is true of almost any empire you can think of. Like I, I think, for example, there are even elements of the Austro-Hungarian Empire's decline mm -hmm. that are similar to what America's going through right now. And um, you know, one of the things that you find that's a common feature of empires in decline that clearly characterizes America, particularly the last 20 years, is that empires in decline are very prone to actually going to war more. When when an empire is kind of like up and coming and on the rise, very often you find they actually don't go to war all that often, and they don't go to war lightly, and they don't go to war stupidly. Yeah. They 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 tend to kind of pick their battles mm -hmm. and only go to war when they're pretty sure they're going to win, and there's actually some upside. So there's something to be won. Right. And then empires in decline, it's the opposite. They go to war more frequently. They go to war over dumber reasons, <laughs> and they go to war very often in cases where you look at it objectively and you go, "There's no upside." Like even yeah. if you win, uh, this isn't gonna. What, what are you going to win? You're not going to win anything tangible. Right. And um, I, I think this is this is one of those human nature things that I, I do think that people who who pursue political power are different from us regular folks in the cheap seats. Like, I think psychologically they're different. I think most of them are sociopaths. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think most of them are are either sociopaths or psychopaths, which, you know, very similar. And, um, and, and you know, most of them also probably have some degree of legit narcissism, narcissism as well. Yeah. And, you know, this then can lead to delusions of grandeur and all sorts right. of crazy things. And, and yeah, I, I, I think, I think that's, that's something that, um, when I really started to look into the psychological literature about like what psychopathy and sociopathy really are and, and how these people really work, it, it was like, it, it lit up a light, you know, so where I could see things I couldn't see before in history Yeah. Um, to just realize like, no, uh, and, and people tend to assume that other people are the same as them. And this this makes most people who are not uh, devoid of conscience and all that potential victims and suckers for people right. who are. Because 
you're getting conned by by a con man, you know, sociopath, and you don't realize this person, you know, you look at what he's doing and you think, oh, he can't just be, you know, ripping me off without a conscience. Nobody would do that. It's like, no, right, some people right. are wired that way. Yeah. And yeah, I think those people are disproportionately likely to be drawn to political power to to pursue it. And I think those people are disproportionately likely to be successful in climbing uh, political hierarchies of power. And so this to me is why leaders tend to sort of be the same types of people throughout mm-hmm. history and also across different countries. Um, you know, every now and then through some freak accident or whatever, a person who's not a complete monster uh, ends up in a high position of political power. It right. does happen, you know, but um, it's not the norm. It's not the default setting. And so this to me is part of why you see uh, people ruling empires in decline tend to behave in similar ways because they're similar people psychologically, right. whether it's the, the late Roman emperors or whether it's the late uh, American imperial presidents. They're, yeah. they're, they're similar psychologically, and they're responding to similar analogous situations with similar actions. And so, yeah, you, you see they, they, they lash out stupidly in wars. And I think very often what's happening is that leaders of empires in decline don't want to admit their empires in decline because they want to still think of themselves as great rulers over great empires. Right. And so, on some level, they kind of delude themselves into thinking, well, if I just, you know, pick a fight with one of my neighbors and, um, you know, kick the crap out of them, uh, I'll turn my empire's decline around and I'll make my empire great again, so to speak. Right. And, and very often, in fact, almost all the time, I think, when the people running empires in decline do this, it has the opposite effect of what they intend and what they think. Right. They think it's going to speed, they think it's going to turn around their empire's decline and it actually speeds it up. And I think that's what you see, for example, uh, if you look at the beginning of World War I, when the Austrian Empire was so eager to go to war against Serbia. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we're just going to, you know, beat the crap out of Serbia. And that'll be that, and we'll flex our muscles and prove to the rest of the world we're still a great power, and and uh, rumors of our decline have been grossly exaggerated. Mm-hmm. And instead of turning around Austria's decline as a great power, um, the their decision to essentially you know launch World War One sped it up. Yeah. And I look at a lot of America's wars recently, and you know none of them have yet ended in quite as dramatic of a disaster as what happened to the Austrian Empire due to World War One. But man, you know, you look at like the the um you know the Af- Afghanistan war or something like that. It's like yeah. what upside was there other than to military contractors who got rich? Yeah. Like, other than that, what was the upside to anybody? Zero. Either American or Afghan. You know, yeah. it's it it just makes no sense. Right. You know, what what's the upside right now to deliberately provoking the heck out of um China and Russia, both nuclear armed countries, by the way. Right. Um, there's there's no upside, you know. What 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 does the United States stand to win uh, by the war in Ukraine, regardless of how it ultimately turns out? Right. There's no upside, other and, than to special interests who profit from it. But that's about it. Right. And on the flip side, there's great cost. Uh, you know, from I mean, you start with the the financial cost. I wish I could remember off the top of my head. I wrote an article for the Tenth Amendment Center about a year ago. Um, that chronicled the cost just in in monetary terms of Afghanistan and the quote unquote war on terror. It's trillions and trillions of dollars. And then you have the other the social costs that go along with this perpetual state of war where where it ends up 
feeding this kind of domestic police state and uh, and and kind of the as as James Madison put it a, a a degeneracy of morals that that kind of comes with you know constantly killing people all over all over the planet and and uh, so it's not just the fact that it's not gaining you anything it's costing you a great deal in in undermining that that quote unquote greatness even further yeah war is corrosive to a society on a, on like a civilization level mm-hmm. it has a decivilizing effect and you know not to say that there might not be rare circumstances where like you have no choice it actually is truly defensive like right. the mongols are steamrolling towards your settlement and there's nothing you can do other than try and fight back right um but those those are actually relatively rare mm-hmm. across the sweep of history most wars aren't that that simple and clear-cut and clearly defensive on the part of one side um and you know even if you found yourself in a situation where you legitimately had no choice but to fight to defend yourself um you would still want it to be as as quick and you know over with as quickly as possible uh because the longer it drags on like you were saying the more it's going to degrade uh your people i mean you can't engage in something like war for very long without it just completely uh corroding your your basic morals and damaging you psychologically. And there's evidence of this um, in the modern world. And there's even kind of anecdotal evidence of this in the ancient world mm-hmm. that, you know, you, you can even see it if you read the Iliad, you can see it being sort of portrayed there. Right. That the longer that that war drags on, the more everybody starts to kind of set aside the ethics and morals and codes of honor that they used to adhere to before it. And, you know, you see it, I talked about it in one of my Civil War episodes, that in the aftermath of the Civil War, there was a big uptick in in things like um, substance addiction, right? and they had to build a whole bunch of new, um, you know, sanit- sanitariums and asylums to deal with uh, damaged veterans. And right. there's, there's evidence in more recent wars, you know, that uh, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, there's noticeable increases in all sorts of social dysfunctions and whatever. Right. So, yeah, and, and that, and I'm sure you're, you know, in speaking to you, I'm I, I'm sure I'm preaching the choir on this. I'm sure you're already, you know, very well aware of this. But that um, it's really kind of disturbing how much sort of like social conservatives, you know, very often self self professed Christians, will be in our time rapidly pro war. Yeah, and, and and then you go like, wait a minute, you know, all the wholesome family values and everything that you claim to stand for are damaged horrifically by war. Mm-hmm. And and you know damaged tremendously by by perpetual war, and so you know just think about and and I'm sure you've heard you know Tom Woods often brings this up I think, um, I think he kind of uh, takes pride in, in causing Pat Buchanan even to kind of you know second guess himself a little bit on the yeah. Vietnam War where he says you know don't you think that the Vietnam War ultimately had a negative effect from a social conservative kind of standpoint that the country would have been better off from a social conservative standpoint if it had stayed out of vietnam yeah. because you wouldn't have gotten all the all the crazy you know political upheaval and cultural upheaval and and revolutionary and quasi revolutionary stuff that the war ultimately you know triggered right yeah and and i always look at it or try to and this was this was something that i kind of had to do as i was making my kind of political evolution cuz i'm i was a neocon i'm ashamed to say and uh you know Kind of looking beyond just my own borders and recognizing the humanity of Iraqi children and, uh, you know, 
Afghan men and women that that those people are people too, and they have families and and by and large, they just want to go on with their lives just like I do. And you insert these governments into into the equation, and all of a sudden you've, you're you're taught to hate these people uh, that you really have no reason to hate. And it's really perverse when you really stop and think about it. And I think that's the problem. People don't stop and think about it. Yeah, and the propaganda, that's something I've been delving into a lot lately um, and that I've been studying for for like 20 years, uh, is the theory and the historical practice of propaganda. Yeah. Um, you know, modern propaganda, propaganda is as old as human society, but modern propaganda really comes out of World War One, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that that propaganda always tries to do is to um, either just sort of ignore memory hole, blackout, pretend don't exist, uh, enemy non-combatants and civilians, or if they can't be just simply ignored, to then one way or another try and portray them as complicit in their government's you know crimes real right. or imagined right. and and it's kind of silly because especially in a case where where they're they're telling the truth that the government that you know you're fighting is is uh, authoritarian dictatorship it's like well if that's the case then there's there's even more reason to not want to attack their civilians because their civilians um aren't even you know even in the the, the fake the kabuki dance sense of you know <laughs> modern democracy like what is, what's the point okay nazi germany is a is a dictatorship all right i'm not going to argue with you on that but then why does it make sense to firebomb civilians including women and children right uh if you've just told me in the last propaganda reel that the hitler regime is a dictatorship that doesn't care about its people well yeah. then what what are you doing by firebombing non-combatants right or you know nuking hiroshima or firebombing tokyo like you yeah. just told me the japanese government one of the reasons they're bad is they don't care about their people <laughs> you know this this then turns into a situation where it's like you've got a bad guy holding a bunch of hostages and your 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 response is to start killing the hostages you know right. start <laughs> sniping the hostages in the name of trying to bring down the bad guy who's holding them hostage it, it makes no sense yeah and um yeah, this is this is something uh, I just um, about a month ago, maybe a little over. Uh, I did a giant episode, um, part one of what's going to be uh, probably a four-part series about World War One propaganda in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I talked about was the the way that this first episode uh, for for those who haven't um, who aren't familiar with it, who haven't listened to my podcast. Uh, the first episode was all about the British propaganda operations in the U.S. for almost right. three years that was designed and ultimately contributed to pulling America into the war on their side. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the British made sure to do with their control of information going across the Atlantic was to to make it so that Americans were pretty much clueless as to the fact that the British had actually broken the rules of naval warfare before the Germans did. Right. Uh, the Americans would hear all about the German U-boats, you know, doing things they weren't supposed to do, which was real. You know, they were they were breaking the laws of rule, uh, the, the rules of war at the time, as far as you know, uh, when they would attack cargo vessels and how they would go about doing it and whatever. They were breaking various pre-existing rules. Right. But the British started breaking the rules of of naval warfare first. Mm-hmm. By by the way they instituted their blockade against Germany, how they carried it out, they were breaking all the previous rules first, 
And only after almost a year of the British doing that did the Germans respond with their U-boat campaign, which also broke some of the naval rules of war. Right. Um, and so Americans were, it's a classic lie by omission. Americans were getting told all about the bad things the Germans were doing, but they weren't hearing uh, little or anything about the bad things the British were doing. And in particular, over the course of the war, and I would, I would bet you that there's not one American in a thousand that knows about this today, over the course of the war, the illegal British starvation blockade against Germany, which kept out everything, including food and medicine, mm-hmm. um, is believed to have killed minimum five or six hundred thousand civilians, yeah. and and very likely much more than that. You know, we don't we don't know for sure. And how many Americans, either during World War One or ever since, have any idea that like? German women and children, elderly people were starving to death for four years yeah. and um, you know, were dying of, of diseases they otherwise would have gotten over, but they were so malnourished. And that the British kept up the starvation blockade even after the armistice was signed. They kept it up until the final treaty was finalized. They, yeah. they continued to starve German women and children and elderly people. And um, there, I, I even mentioned in that episode, there, there were some documents uncovered not too long ago that were records of, I, I think, German... Uh, schools in the aftermath of World War One, and German schools back then, you know, typical German fashion. They're very meticulous about record keeping and all that. Right. They they kept detailed records about students as far as like their height and weight and things like this. And for years after World War One was over, uh, German kids in many schools were like smaller than was the norm. They right. they were shorter and lighter. Like they were malnourished for years. Yeah. Um, and as many people may know, like if if you don't get enough nutrition when you're a child, that can permanently stunt your growth to where right. even if you do eventually get good food and whatever, you're not going to be as big and tall and healthy as you would have been otherwise. So, you know, that's the legacy of the British and they're the good guys that we needed yeah. to bail out, you know. And again, to me, the, the proper approach isn't to go, well, that must mean the Kaiser's great and the Germans are the good <laughs> right. guys. No, it's I, I end up in the same place I did with the Civil War where it's like Neither side is good. Um, so, you know, the fact that I'm I'm going against the side that we're generally propagandized to sympathize with, um, you know, doesn't mean I, I have to and doesn't mean that I am then going to suddenly be like, oh, yeah, the Kaiser was great and the German right. government was awesome during World War One. It's like, no, they, they were bad, too. Um, and therefore, to me, the only uh, rational and ethical thing for the United States would have been to, to stay out of it. Stay out, yeah. One of the things that I found fascinating, but I'm about two-thirds through that episode. And uh, you talked about how one of the very first operations that the British did was to cut the transatlantic cable lines so that all of the information that was flowing into North America was basically going through Britain. So nobody even got a chance to hear the German side of, of things because that communication was effectively cut off, which goes to show just how powerful, um, you know, being able to control that narrative is. Or to to basically eliminate part of the narrative. Yeah, and the British, you know, they were dominant around the world in telegraph cables even before the war, uh, just because they they had such a huge global empire. And you know, obviously, if you have an empire, it's useful to be able to communicate quickly across it. And so then they were able to knock out the German cables that went to North America, and then use their naval dominance to protect their own cables while preventing the German cables from ever being repaired. And this created what I refer to as narrative hegemony where, yeah, you know, little bits and pieces of things from Germany would get to America one way or the other, but it was just dominated by the British approved thing. And so 
you know, even American journalists who were operating in Europe during the period of American neutrality, if they were transmitting their stories back to New York or wherever they were from, uh, it would have to go through British telegraph cables in most cases. And guess what? The British government was uh, monitoring those and censoring those, and they're not going to let you in most cases. If Let's say, and a lot of American journalists were already pro-British and were already basically being propaganda. Right. But there were some honest journalists who were trying to send back accurate, you know, fair information of what was really going on on the ground in Europe. And very often they wouldn't be able to because the British just wouldn't, you know, allow their messages to go through on their telegraph cables. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's very analogous, uh, in my opinion, to the way that the West, the NATO world, whatever, has dealt with the information coming out about the war in Ukraine, mm-hmm. where you know you're you're clearly only getting one side, and it's being presented to you as the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But it is absolutely not, you know. And and what exactly the truth of everything is, as far as on the ground in Ukraine, I don't claim to know. But I I do know that governments have every incentive in the world to lie and mm-hmm. to manipulate. During wartime, like they, they always have an incentive to lie and manipulate and propagandize, but during wartime, it goes uh, through the roof. Yeah, hyper And so, yeah, so, you know, I, I don't accept at face value automatically anything that comes from anybody affiliated with the Ukraine government or with, you know, the American government or with the American corporate press, which might as well just be considered part of the American part of the government American at government. this point. Yeah. And, uh, or the American government. And for that matter, I don't automatically accept what the Russians are saying because- right. They also have incentives to 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 lie uh, when it's to their advantage to do so, to to suppress facts when it's to their advantage to do so, to try and manipulate what people perceive. But you know, you, you look at like how quick every single Russian um, you know news service and information outlet was just completely uh, shut down yeah. throughout the West, and it's like, well, you know, yeah, I'm sure they'd be putting out propaganda of their side, but now you're just getting. Ukrainian and NATO propaganda, right? And that's not a good. That's not a good solution. Right. Um, and I mean, it, it was really ridiculous too. That where, um, you know, even people who had previously worked on RT, who were American, who were in no way really a Putin apologists, got like shut down off of YouTube. Like people like Chris Chris Hedges, for example. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, okay. He he had a show on RT. He's obviously not a pro Putin propagandist or whatever. Right. Um, the idea that he should be like blacklisted from everything uh, simply because he had a show that happened to be on RT, like he, he clearly was his own his own independent guy. Right. Um, so yeah, that was that was really disturbing um, at the start of the Ukraine war. That and then also the way they tried to like demonize Russian culture and the entire Russian people. Yeah. Where it's like, um, what was it near the beginning of the Ukraine war where they? Uh, whoever is in charge of it decided that like Russian athletes could couldn't participate in the Special Olympics that year. Yeah, it's like yes. Like, okay, good, good. Some some handicapped Russian kids <laughs> right. are, are no longer allowed to do in the thing because of something Putin did. Oh, and again, you know, you just finished telling me Putin's a dictator, doesn't care what his people think. Right. So so you're punishing a handicapped kid um, from not being able to be in the Special Olympics because of what his government did, and his government supposedly doesn't even care what he thinks anyway. Um, or or when you heard about like um you know, libraries throwing out all of their Russian literature. It's right. like, really? You're throwing out Tolstoy? <laughs> right. <laughs> Dostoevsky. 
yeah, yeah. Let's throw out the literature of a of a Christian pacifist anarchist. Yeah. Uh, in the name of opposing Putin's war, like right. it, it makes no rational sense whatsoever. And again, eerily similar. Uh, back to this idea of historical, you know, rhyming. Eerily similar to what happened in this country, which I'll be covering later in that series uh, about World War propaganda, to um, what happened in this country as far as demonizing all things German. Like, not just, right. oh, the Kaiser and his government are bad, but the German people are evil, you know, German uh, uh, books getting burned. Right. Don't eat um, sauerkraut. Yeah, yeah. Let's call it liberty cabbage because that'll, right. that'll help win the war. And, and a lot of that… Um, got really ugly a lot of that was was what i would call like bottom up enforcement or horizontal enforcement where um a lot of the worst excesses of that stuff was not being done by the government directly in the us it was being done by private citizens and private right. you know vigilante organizations and things like this well, but we some saw. of it got really ugly where you know people in a few cases were killed right. and in, in in many more cases were like severely beaten and tortured and whatever for things like saying good morning to your neighbor in German, right? Yeah. And this is at a time where the German immigrant population in the United States in a lot of cities was huge. Right. And, you know, there was there was at least one case where uh, a Lutheran minister was performing the last rites for an elderly dying woman. And because she was a German immigrant, he did the the prayer in in German. Right. And uh, some super patriot, you know, types overheard this and and basically um i i don't think they killed him but they like severely beat this lutheran minister for for saying those evil german yeah. uh, kraut words so yeah we, we saw that similar kind of dynamic you know in more recent years with muslims oh for sure yeah yeah and you know um i think the government did a little bit better of a job of at least trying in some cases to to you know right wrongs where they occurred um, you know, it's still they probably could have and should have done more. But man, when you look back at World War One, it's even worse. Where right, um, people would just be completely let off the hook for for horrific acts of violence, right, or um, even encouraged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 attitude of the courts very often, even where convictions did occur, was sort of like, well, you know, boys will be boys, and right. you know, it is a war, and uh, you know, if these guys who um, practically lynched somebody for saying good morning in German. If they're guilty of anything, it's of loving America too much. Right. And right. in a war like this, is that something we really want to punish them for? You know, so they get like a slap on the wrist or whatever if they even got convicted at all, which yeah. a lot of the times a propagandized jury would just let them off the hook even for, you know, brutalizing somebody. Well, I'm sure we could talk about this forever. I want to be respectful of your time. So we're going to wind this down. I do, do want to ask, I do a, a little feature for my supporting listeners. Uh, I, I was going to call it a lightning round, but I call it a mudslide round because the first time I did it, it took 20 minutes. I don't think it'll take 20 minutes, but just a series of quick, fun questions if you're willing to, to hang with me just for a few more minutes after we wrap up. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, but before we do that, I want you to let folks know where they can find the Dangerous History podcast and, and uh, how they can uh, subscribe and start listening and, and support what you're doing. Sure. So the show is called the Dangerous History Podcast. And if you just put in dangerousherystorypodcast.com uh, into your web browser, you'll get to my homepage. And then uh, also, you know, however you like to listen to podcasts, most people use some sort of podcatcher app. So whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's Spotify, whatever else is out there these days, if you just go in there and just search for Dangerous History Podcast, as far as I know, I'm 
pretty much my feed is syndicated in all the the major podcast venues. So you should be able to find it in whichever one you prefer. And uh, yeah, feel free to go through my back catalog. A lot of it's evergreen stuff. It's one of the cool things about doing history. Um, You know, my Civil War series was like, I forget, five years ago or something like that. Um, But it's still, you know, worth listening to today. My favorite, Um, my favorite series that you did was the uh, one you did on the Everglades. Oh, yeah. As a fellow Florida man, I, I found out all of that extremely fascinating. So. Yeah, yeah, that that's one of the ones that has sort of like a cult following within my my audience, and um, yeah, yeah, I do. I, like I would to, be in the cult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do like to to throw in some Florida history every now and then because I have studied it a lot and taught it uh, in college. So another one on the Florida history vein that I did a long time ago, very early, and that now is behind my paywall with my earliest episodes was on the Seminole Wars yeah. in the 1800s. And that's that's one I want to revisit in the future uh, with longer episodes, with more detail, and of course, with my much more improved audio and production quality uh, versus back in 2014. So yeah, but anyway, Dangerous History Podcast, wherever you listen to your, your podcast, you should be able to find it. And um, if, you, if you like my work and want to help me out uh, and get access to various bonuses and perks and whatever... I'm on Patreon. I'm on Subscribestar. Um, in the future, I'll probably have some other venues for recurring uh, monthly contributions and things. And then also, my Indiegogo is still up for at least another week or so. So if anybody wants to throw in a one-time donation, uh, if you just go to Indiegogo and search for Dangerous History Podcast, it should come up. And um, there's various perks and things you get there uh, if you contribute, depending on how much. I will pop all of those links into the show notes page so people can go straight there. Sounds good. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you for being on. Hang with me for a few minutes and and we'll do the the really fun questions for the the elite uh, Godarchy podcast listeners. But thank you again for taking the time. Really good conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. My pleasure. All right. There you go. History. Gosh, I so badly want to do the cheesy, that's the end of the podcast, it's history. So, I'm not going to do that, even though I just kind of did. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it for this episode. Again, remember, you can support Godarchy. Go to our supporting listener page over at godarchy.org, and uh, you'll be able to hear the mudslide round that I mentioned. Uh, in this one, we talk about snakes. That's a good one. So... Um, appreciate your support. Appreciate you listening to the show. I hope you have a, uh, a fantastic rest of your day. And I will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. All right, it's time for the ending stuff. Again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Make sure you check out the website, godarchy.org. You can sign up to our email list there. We're also on social media, on Facebook, at godarchy.org. We're on the Twitters, at godarchy. And you can also find us on MeWe. Just look for godarchy. If you want to contact me, shoot me an email, info at godarchy.org. And of course, you can support the show. Just go to godarchy.org. Hit the support godarchy button. Follow the instructions. Again, we really value your listenership. That's all. There's no more. Just listen to the music.